place it comfortably. So, day four. Um, to give this um, talk a title, um, it's called Throwing a Pebble in the Pond. And uh, we have many ponds around here. And on a, a still day like this, when there's no wind, you know, the, the ponds become very clear and serene and still and they reflect what, what's around them. And there's no disturbance on the, on the, um, on the surface of the pond. And that, in a way, is what happens with our mind um, when we do a session and we do meditation. Is it becomes more like a still pond, which is just reflecting life as it is around it. But if I extend the metaphor, um, what ruffles the surface of the pond is the wind. And as you may know from your Buddhist readings, there is... Um, a Buddhist teaching called the Eight Worldly Winds. I think it actually comes from Tibetan Buddhism, but I think it's original. It goes way back, but from Tibetan Buddhism. But it's a very good teaching. And the Eight Worldly Winds come in four pairs, and uh, they're praise and blame, being caught up in praise, wanting praise, avoiding blame, um, pleasure and pain, um, loss and gain, and dishonour and fame. They're the eight worldly winds that we get blown around by in our life. And they ruffle the surface of the pond so it doesn't reflect clearly what's around it. And and that's what we're we're cultivating. That's what's actually happening as we go deeper into session. That pond becomes just clearer and reflects. But now that we're there, I want to throw a pebble in the pond. And um, I want to tell you a story that I came across. It's a fictional story and it's called um, The Ones Who Walked Away from Omelas. And it's written by a woman called Ursula Leguin. And it's a disturbing story. That's what I'm telling you. Oh, that's the pebble that's been thrown into the pond. And in the story, there is this utopian city and, um, and uh, you know, everyone gets on really well. It's got very sort of high ethical standards and very sophisticated political systems and people have very good friendships, you know, very fond of one another, help one another, good sense of community. The crops grow really well. It's sort of, you know, everyone's well fed. And the arts flourish. And it's just like a utopian city to be in, you know. So everyone's happy there. Um, But there's a dark secret in the city. And the the well-being, the life of the city depends on this dark secret. And what the dark secret is, is that there is a child which is a prisoner in a cellar and it has no access to light, and it lives in squalor and despair. And the city's happiness depends on this child being a prisoner, and it's a dark secret. And everyone in the city knows vaguely that this is the, this is why the city is happy, 
and uh, um, and some people kind of it's in the back of their minds, but don't really want to know about it. They just go along with their everyday life, and some people are aware of it, um, but they kind of push it away, or they think, well, that's just the price we've all got to pay for everyone to be happy. Um, but there are some people who can't not satisfied with that and they won't go down and see for themselves this child who is a prisoner in this squalid condition and suffering and so they go down and they bear witness to the child who's in the cellar and they're the ones who walk away from the city of Omelas. Disturbing story isn't it? Mm -hmm. With a lot of metaphorical applications for life. Mm -hmm. So that's the pebble of suffering I'm throwing into the clear pond is that you know we've all given up a week of our lives to sit and to cultivate um, you know a calm mind, serene mind which is a wonderful thing to do Um, but there is suffering in the world out there in here, but particularly out there, and um, we can ignore it and just work for our own happiness if we want to, like the people in Omalas, or we can be aware of the dark secret, you know, in the sense that there is there is darkness out there, there is suffering out there, you know, and if you're disturbed by the story, like I am, well, good, mm-hmm. good. Because if you're disturbed by the story, and if you think you'd be one of the people who walk away from the city of Omelas, then it demonstrates that you have empathy and compassion, and that you want to cultivate a bodhisattva spirit. Because Buddhism, or any kind of religion or meditation, can so easily just become about my personal happiness. but Zen is in the, the Bodhisattva tradition, uh, like many other forms of Buddhism, and the Bodhisattva spirit is to not just to work for your own towards your own happiness, but to work, work to walk to to work towards the happiness of everyone. Now, there is a, a simple kind of um, silly little song which you may have heard of, which comes from about the 1930s. Um, And the words of it are, I want to be happy, but I won't be happy until you're happy too. And it's a corny little song, but it's very profound. And those words really capture the Bodhisattva spirit. Like, yeah, I, I want to be happy, I kind of am, but I won't really be happy until there's no suffering in the world. How can you live in that city and be truly happy knowing very clearly that a child's suffering like that? And if we realise, you know, the different instances of suffering in the world like now, you know, people who are in a war zone, um, people who don't have enough food or shelter and things like that, people who... Um, uh, you know, can't look after themselves and so on. Um, if we're aware of that um, and it disturbs you, well, good. If you're like me, I, I don't want it any other way. I want to be disturbed by those things. 
and yet it disturbs me, but it doesn't disturb me. You know, it's kind of like the surface of the pond, you know, has ripples going out, but in your depths there's still a kind of serenity which is there. Um, some of the conversations I've had with some people during this session, but with people over the years, you know, running a Zen centre, with people, sometimes from time to time, people come up with this question or this dilemma, you know, like, should we really be just be sitting here on our butts, you know, becoming calm, or should we be out in the world? Wouldn't it be better if we were out in the world, you know, in action and social action and so on, and try to relieve suffering? Well, it's not an either-or, um, obviously. You can do both. Um, but, it's a, but it's a good question to ask, and it's an interesting question to ask. And if our, our practice was just about me and my serenity and my personal happiness, well, yes, it goes a certain direction, but it doesn't really lead you to a very deep fulfilment in life. And if you consider um, the Stroud Monastery in the background of it, and I've read the the book about um, Sister Angela and the the history of it, is that the, the Sisters of St. Clair were a contemplative order. And that means that they just, they cloistered themselves and they, they prayed. And when they came to this community, they weren't very well received at first because people were used to nuns doing social work. Like they're out there, you know, helping the sick and the poor and getting food and so on and being nurses and so on. So who were these nuns who were just cloistered away, you know, praying? You know, what, what, what good do they do? You know? But when you go into it, um, what this community of women did, they weren't praying for their own salvation. They, they, they went into very intense prayer, like they went into retreats for long periods of time. They were praying to relieve the suffering in the world. And whether you believe in the power of prayer or not, I don't know whether it makes a difference or not, actually. Um, but it's kind of, whether it does or not, it's pretty kind of inspiring that people would give up their hedonistic lives to do this, to pray for the welfare of the whole sentient beings, for the whole world. Mm-hmm. Whether it makes a difference, I don't know, but I find it inspiring. So even in the history of this place here and what happened here. Um, that was the practice and that was the spirit, it was a, a bodhisattva spirit. And from what I can tell from the reading, they are a pretty cheerful bunch of women. Mm-hmm. And this was a very, very vibrant community um, back in the 1970s and 80s when it was really alive. And it inspired a lot of people. A lot of people came here and they brought that spirit out into the world, and maybe we can we can continue the the tradition you know, in some way. Um, we often hear these days of um, engaged Buddhism, which has become more of a Western phenomenon. And uh, but teachers, Asian teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, um, has been a who's now has 
died, but um, contributed enormously to um, uh, bringing the spirit of the Bodhisattva spirit into the world, you know, with non-violent political action, being concerned about justice issues and, and environmental issues and so on. And uh, was a true inspiration. And Robert Aitken Roshi, one of my teachers too, was one of the founders of the um, Buddhist Peace Fellowship and was very, had a very strong um, political activist approach as well. It doesn't mean, um, well, my approach to this is that there can be problems with that because I see myself as just a, a, a Zen teacher and I do my own environmental work outside of here, but I don't, I don't want a Zen centre to be tribal political in any way. I want people just to, to do the practice and to cultivate the practice and, and I leave it up to individuals to go out and do their bodhisattva work in the way that they feel is right for them rather than being prescribed in some kind of way and to give people the, the freedom to do that. But nevertheless, whatever whatever form it takes, um, there's something that we cultivate out of doing this work that needs to have a follow-through in action in the world um, that goes beyond me, goes beyond my family, you know, goes further into community or beyond community. Mm -hmm. um, some of us, many of us are, are fortunate to be able uh, to do that in, in the work that we do, in our workplaces. But it does need to follow through um, into um, action of some kind. And a good little statement here that I remember Robert Aitken always used to refer to, which wasn't his, he just repeated it, um, think globally and act locally. Mm -hmm. It's a good, a good approach to take. The problem is a lot of people who get involved in political action, social justice, environment, all kinds of issues, um, so many people seem to be driven by ideology, like by abstract thinking, left hemisphere, mm -hmm. and it's, it's driven by that, not necessarily by compassion, but by anger, um, and anger and abstract thinking um, is a volatile mix, mm -hmm. which can lead to a lot of harm, evil perhaps, even in the world. And uh, what's important is that we're, we're, not, we're, we're not, by doing meditation practice, that our, our work is not um, driven by abstract thinking, and it's not driven by anger or the combination of those two together. And um, some very um, high profile writers, um, Jordan Peterson being one, as well as Ian McGilchrist, um, I'm finding as well, um, have a lot to say. Jordan Peterson actually did his PhD thesis on how abstract thinking amongst human beings uh, can cause so much harm. Like, think of the Jewish Holocaust, think of what's happening in Ukraine now. Various different things. It's only human beings do this, animals don't do it. 
you know, animals don't do wars or mass murders and so on. Yeah, they'll protect their territory and kill other animals to protect their young and whatever, but they don't suffer from abstract thinking of right and wrong and superior, racially superior or whatever, and go about murdering people. Right? It's very, very disturbing that actually human beings are the only species that seem to do this. Right? So it's very important that we're not caught up in that. Um, so by doing this practice, um, if we learn through a meditation retreat um, and we can acknowledge and we can see how we've blown around by those eight worldly winds, you know, the praise and blame, the loss and gain, pleasure, pain, fame, ignominy. Um, if, we, if we can work so we're not blown around by, I think, those things quite so much here, then we go, when we do out and we're active in the world, hopefully we can bring that with us. Right, so we're not caught, we're not driven by anger, we're not driven by ideology, we're driven by compassion, right? And we're driven by don't know mind. And that's a very different motivation. But that's, that's how this works, that's how the Bodhisattva practice works. We all need to come in and do something like this um, so that we, 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 we find a way not to be blown around by those different winds, right? And, and you can only do it by being, you know, silent and still like this for a whole week. You get a sense of it. And it doesn't, doesn't stop when you finish the session. You take that um, serenity and that compassion back into the world and you apply it in some way, in a creative way. Um, so welcome... Welcome it when someone drops a pebble into your pond. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get news of suffering, you know, absorb it. Um, there was a correspondence I had um, a few years ago with um, uh, James Austin, who is the man who wrote the books on Zen and the Brain and so on. And uh, I emailed him a few times, and he was very amused by my email address, Jeffrey Dawson at Big Pond. He <laughs> 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 thought it was very funny. And I said, um, I'll meet you in the Big Pond. <laughs> what is the Big Pond? <laughs> the Big Pond is timeless, it's spacious, it has no bounds, it's everywhere. Uh -huh. That's the Big Pond. And um, to come back to the to the the icons, you know, of um, of Buddhism, you know, Avalokiteshvara is the Bodhisattva of compassion. You all know Avalokiteshvara. She has many eyes and many hands, and she listens to the sounds of suffering in the world. But she doesn't just listen to the sounds of suffering in the world. She's got all these hands and fingers, you know, and toes and so on, to actually do things in the world, practically, to relieve the suffering. And there's a well-known koan about this. Um, 
where the monk asked the teacher, why does the Bodhisattva of Compassion have all those eyes and ears, uh, eyes and, and, and hands and so on? And how, how did they use? And the teacher said, it's like reaching for a pillow in the night. What does that mean? I mean, it's like, how, like how, how did she do all that? Do you know, it's so complex. Well, it's just like reaching for a pillow in the night. That's kind of like, it's unconscious, just sort of natural. And that's what happens with practice. It's not like we're trying to be compassionate. It's just something that unconsciously happens, like reaching for a pillow in the night. You see suffering and, and you empathically resonate with it and you automatically want to, want to do something, you know, to respond to it. It's the kind of spirit of it. Finally, um, in the Zen Peace Fellowship, um, there, which is a Zen uh, social political activist American organisation, they have three principles that they work on. Cultivating don't know mind, bearing witness and compassionate action. And if you remember those three principles, they're three good, three good principles to guide you in your work, in your family, in any kind of um, community work that you do. Don't know mind. Don't be caught up in ideological dogma, right? But the right or the left or the middle or wherever it is. It's kind of secondary, right? But it's not forefront. Don't know mind. Mm -hmm. And then bearing witness. You know, like, don't turn, don't turn your gaze away from suffering, like people in the city of Omegas. Bear witness to suffering. And then compassionate action, like not just bearing witness or having don't know mind, but something actually comes out of it that actually relieves suffering. So, that's the ongoing work for all of us. <laughs>